It's great to be here, and I really do mean that because if I wasn't here, I'd be at work. And so it's, it's more just to, to see your great faces and to also get a day off, so it's pretty cool. Uh, but really, seriously, I've missed being here. Uh, this is now my second year to not be in Bible study in the day group. I did last year, I did the night group, uh, which was a blessing as well. But So I've missed out because I had an engagement on Wednesday nights, and I just couldn't be gone from work that long. And so <clears throat> I really do miss you guys. So when, when they asked me to, uh, to do this, or I, I knew there was a possibility I might teach. So good intentions, you know, I thought, well, I'll follow along with the study and uh, just do it on my own. Well, you know how good intentions go. So <laughs> anyway, it's been interesting. So anyway, good to be here. My name is Kim Cosgrove, and uh, if I don't know you, I would love to meet you afterwards. So... Most of y'all use social media. I mean, there's nothing quite like a good viral story, right? Uh, one night, two years ago, 2017, a young woman named Kate McClure was driving through Philadelphia. She was on I-95. She ran out of gas. Okay, she pulls over. Up walks this obviously homeless guy, and she's a little frightened, but he offers her 20 bucks and says, uh, looks like you need help. Uh, here's $20 to get some gas. She was floored. She's like, how can I repay such a generous act of kindness? Uh, so what do you do in, in the modern world? You go crowdsource it, right? You're gonna, she's going to pay it forward. She's going to raise funds on the Internet, tell their story, and, and get this guy out of the homeless situation he's in. So, sure enough, it went viral. I mean, what's better in, on social media, besides the great dog videos, uh, <laughs> than a great human interest story? So, they raised almost $400,000, and it was like, uh, this is amazing. But unfortunately, this story does not have a happy ending, because we find out that Kate McClure is now awaiting sentencing for 20 years in prison. Why? Because it was all made up. It was a lie. Uh, she conspired with her boyfriend and the homeless guy to put out this story and raise money. So for a couple of years, they were living the high life. BMWs, casino trips, uh, expensive handbags, and then it all fell apart. And now she sits 28 years old awaiting a 20-year prison sentence in a jail cell. Stunning. Everyone wants the good life. I don't have to convince you of that. This is human nature. And a lot of people are willing to do anything to get it. The problem we all have is that we're deceived about what the good life is. So let's get started and uh, open your Bibles if you have them. We're going to be in Matthew 7, 13 through 20. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. 
Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would speak to us today. Your word is living and active, and I know that we are not here by accident. You have a word for us. Your word does not return void, and I'm asking that you would uh, use me to, to speak your word, be clear to our minds, and real to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So I kind of admitted up front that I haven't been doing the study, so I just had to do a crash course. It's like I'm wrapping up one of the last two <laughs> passages on the sermon. I need to know what this thing's about, right? So <clears throat> I started, you know, do, I'm reading, I'm doing all my things. And as God does when I start looking, you know, when I focus in, he just starts bringing things that I didn't even know I was looking for. And so I ended up finding a book, and it, I've got in your notes the description of the book. And so a lot of what I'm going to say is from this book, Dr. Jonathan Pennington's The Sermon on the Mount and Human Flourishing. Um, it, I'm going to just do a small plug for the book. I don't know who his intended audience is because it is a little scholarly. However, very readable. Okay, and so people that have spent six months in the Sermon on the Mount, I'm telling you, I think you would like this book. I thoroughly enjoyed this book. But, so, so full disclosure there that he's kind of oriented me this way about trying to figure out what is, how is Jesus wrapping up this sermon. Um, really, probably the greatest sermon ever preached. Uh, I am now really sad that I did not spend six months in the Sermon on the Mount. It is an amazing one. So what is the sermon about? As I prepare to wrap it up, and, and you all have been in it, so I'm not telling you anything you don't know. So really, this is for me. So humor me as I tell you what the Sermon on the Mount is about. It's about the kingdom. Two times as before he starts to give the sermon you hear the exact same phrase from two different people. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist says it, then Jesus says it, word for word. Okay, repetition, take note. Something's important happening. So that is the message of the Sermon on the Mount, that it's describing the kingdom of heaven. So, one thing you learn when you um, start studying the Bible and, and to prepare to understand what it's saying is you want to get the context. Okay, you all, you all probably heard this little example. Old fish swimming in the ocean, passes two young fish, says, hey, youngins, how's the water? The fish, you know, wave their fins and swim by. They're gone. They go, what the heck is water to each other? Okay. I can see y'all got that illustration, right? <laughs> the laughter was deafening. No. What it is is when you're young, you don't even know the culture you're in, okay? The, the, the Sermon on the Mount had a culture that it was given in. So let's, I'm going to quickly just do a little background to, to help us set this sermon of 
why I'm going to go where I'm going. The two big timelines of history that are happening right now is, I'm going to call it the Second Temple Judaism. This is after the exile when the Second Temple was built. Um, And we know a lot about it. We studied Isaiah last semester. Uh, You've been studying it. It's, as church people, very familiar with Judaism. So I'm not going to spend a ton of time there. Obviously, huge uh, part of his culture that he's giving this sermon in. The second area is kind of fascinating. It's, I'm going to call it the Greco-Roman virtue tradition. How's that for a mouthful? Okay, not, I wasn't quite as versed in this culture, but it's just as real going on at, uh, in this, this time period. Uh, the leaders of this uh, tradition are Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. They've all deceased by the time Jesus gets on the scene, but they've made a huge impact into that world. And these philosophers, I want to tell you a little bit about what they're preaching in their, to their crowds. Aristotle is the one most known for this. He, he developed an idea called eudaimonia. It's a Greek word which refers to a state of having a good and dwelling spirit or being in a contented state of being healthy, happy, and prosperous. In moral philosophy, eudaimonia is used to refer to the right actions as those that result in the well-being of an individual. So, Aristotle defines the supreme good as an activity of the rational soul in accordance with virtue. Maybe a little surprising to you that virtue is such a huge part of this world. Aristotle defines moral virtue as a disposition to behave in the right manner as a mean between extremes of deficiency and excess, meaning there... Those extremes and excesses are vices, but right down the middle is the virtue. So to Aristotle, the good life was a virtuous life, okay? And only through living virtuously can we achieve eudaimonia, the good life, which roughly, uh, basically might be paraphrased happiness or human flourishing. So, and Aristotle emphasized that virtue was practical, the, purpose, the whole purpose of this was to become good, not just merely know about good. Okay, so now we've got Second Temple Judaism, where we've got God's people living under the law, and then we've got this cross-section of Greco-Roman virtue tradition, and smack dab in the middle of it enters Jesus into our king. So I'm going to... to uh, give you a position that the interp- I'm going to interpret the Sermon on the Mount as descriptive of human flourishing. Jesus enters the, dis- the scene to tell us what does it look like when a human is living as God designed us to live. Okay, but first a test before we get into this. Because I'm up front and I really, I can do anything I want, so I'm going to do this. <laughs> and it really is a test because I don't know what you're going to say. Okay. So I got to explain a little bit. Don't be scared. I'm not putting anybody on the spot. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to describe. I'm going to give you a word, and I want you to think of a word you associate with it. Okay. 
I'm going to give you maybe three seconds. So I'm really looking for the first word that comes to your mind. Don't worry. I'm not putting anybody on the spot. Okay. So don't say it. After we've all had our three seconds and we think of our word, then I'm going I'm to get some feedback. Okay? All right. So here's the word. I want you to tell me what you, the first word you think of that you associate with it. The word is humanity. Okay, stop. Now, honor system can't change what you thought of, okay? <laughs> Anybody want to share the word they thought of that they associated with humanity? Selfishness. Selfishness, okay. Adam. 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 Broken. Okay. Broken. Fallen. Okay. I said city. City? Yeah. Okay. Culture. Okay. All right. Interesting. Okay. reason I did that is because in the book, Dr. Pennington did that test. The overwhelming response was sinful. Okay. And I would say that it sounded like it was kind of similarly close here. He said, that's interesting. As, as church people, it, it, it is overwhelmingly seems to be that answer. I'm not sure non-church people if it would be that answer. It'd be interesting. That would be an interesting test too. But he, he says, what if our first thought was not sinful? What if that was our secondary thought and our first thought was loved or beautiful? But we just don't have it because it's not our experience. And so this idea that we were created to flourish... We were created to be beautiful as humans. It's just we've lived now in this fallen world where we don't experience it. But in comes Jesus to show us what humanity can be. So I'm going to just stay a little bit on the um, giving the background, and I'm going to talk a little bit about the charts. I put the charts in your notes because I know these, these words you might not have heard of before, if you have. Um, but, but they're there, so you can look them up and do your own study. But Dr. Pennington bases his, his interpretation that the Sermon on the Mount is how do humans flourish, uh, based on the two Greek words that find themselves in the text. They are makarios and teleos, okay? And I've given you the translation there, the... Makarios is the beatitude word, how blessed is the. And the teleos word is be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Okay. So normally that's how they're translated. Those Greek words are translated to blessed and perfect. But he says, you know, there's, this is a pro- problem with translations. Sometimes they don't, they don't tra- it's not easy to translate. How do you, you can translate nouns very easily, chair, you know. But big ideas like happiness a little tougher cross-culturally. So he says the, the better translation for Makarios is happy or flourishing, whereas blessed kind of has a connotation to us. Uh, and I'm going to move down to that second chart. This idea of Makarios is when you see the word blessed, a lot of times you see... Uh, the divine effectual speech, meaning God's here, God, human, blessed. Uh, 
a divine action towards the human. And he said, a lot of times when we see the word blessed, that's what we're thinking of. God is divinely acting favorably towards the human. And he says, really, this word makarios is not that, even though it's translated that, it's this. What is the result to the human of being blessed? It's happiness or flourishing. Okay, it's the response. So that second table is saying there's two ways of seeing that word blessed, either a divine effectual speech, meaning God says it and it happens. Its, it's paired word is curse. It's opposite. Blessing, curse. All right? The word we're, we're studying in our passage is not that word. It is the human descriptive speech, like what happens to the human once the blessing happens. It's saying it's called a, a macarism or makario. Its paired word is a woe. So blessing, woe. All right? Is that clear? So you can look that up later on your own, but I've got it in your notes so you can so look at it. So, so he's building his case that this whole Sermon on the Mount is about the human flourishing based on those two words. And teleos, which he says you know, is translated perfect in a lot of translations, really the better meaning is wholeness, more like shalom. Like you've heard that said, what does it mean to be complete? Uh, So that kind of changes when it says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. It can make you go, whoa, who's perfect? I can't, I'm not perfect. But when you hear, be whole as your heavenly father is whole, it kind of changes that, that meaning for you. Okay, so, so the summary, according to Dr. Pennington of the Sermon on the Mount is to deconstruct and then reconstruct what it means to humans to flourish. Okay, with all that as a backdrop, we get to our passage finally. Okay. So, <clears throat> one interesting thing, I'm going to say that this, this last uh, sermon, the text, is acting as a wisdom sermon. Okay, he's telling us how to live. And just like a lot of wisdom sermons, there's two things to choose from at the end. Uh, And we see it here. Two gates, two paths, uh, two ends. Later, we have two trees. We have two fruits. We have, at the end, next week, we'll have two, two houses on two foundations. So, I mean, you get this idea that He's presenting a choice here. And it's really fascinating how much the Sermon on the Mount uh, parallels Psalm 1, you know, the great psalm. uh, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Same word, blessed. I mean, it's like it, it almost like he wants to draw our attention to that. And then that psalm ends with the, you know, the way of the righteous leads to life, the way of the wicked will perish. I mean, it's that same idea of Righteous go to life, the wicked perish. So we find ourselves here in this text with that description. Okay, so the first thing we have here is a call to enter the kingdom. Okay? Enter by the narrow gate. And a gate is just an entrance point, right? It takes us from one place to another. I mean, some examples, we got platform nine and three quarters. We have the wardrobe. 
we have Buckingham Palace. All of them takes us from one place to another. But what's interesting about this picture is that it's a paradoxical call. It doesn't look good to us. We look at the, the list, and the only thing that changes how we perceive it is the end. So you only know which road is good by the end point. It's counterintuitive. So what that tells me is that you can't see the end point unless you have a perspective outside of yourself. When you look at it, it looks right to you. Uh, Ray and I love movies, and we just watched First Man. If y'all haven't seen that one, that one's good. Um, this is the one about the uh, guy that first walked on the moon. What, what's his name? Neil, thanks. <laughs> right, I'm thinking Ryan Gosling first walked on the moon. No, it was Neil Armstrong. Got it. Okay, so he's being interviewed uh, to see if he's going to get the job to be an astronaut. And the question is that they pose to him is space flight important? And he stops, I mean, his whole career is riding on this answer, right? And so he says, atmosphere is such a small part of the earth, but it looks so big. When you get a different vantage point, it changes your perspective. I don't know what space exploration will uncover, but it allows us to see things. And maybe that we should have seen a long time ago, but just haven't been able to until now. So basically, this is what Jesus is doing for us. He's giving us perspective on, on life. Like I said, we don't have to be persuaded we want the good life. That's just a bottom line. Every person you meet, I mean, isn't that stunning? Every person you meet wants the good life. We just have to be persuaded what the good life is. Right? We all have different views of that. Life is full of examples of where hard things lead to good. Okay? I mean, God has left his imprint everywhere, right? I mean, I, I'll just go through you know, some things that came to mind. I started exercising about a year and a half ago. You know, it's like, okay, I've got to do something. Um, honestly, it's hard. It's hard to get up at 4.30 and go out into the weather like you're nodding. Yes, it's hard, but it leads to something good, okay? So you start to feel better. You, you just start operating better. How about quitting smoking? I haven't smoked, but I'm just saying. Your body is rebelling against the lack of nicotine, okay? It doesn't feel good to try to quit smoking, but it leads to health, how about becoming a parent? Why does anybody do this? It's hard, right? <laughs> but we know it's good, right? There's a lot of good to be in it. How about academics? You kill yourself studying. Uh, some people try to take the short rate and bribe their kids into college. I've heard a rumor that this is a thing. But we do the hard work, if you do it right, to get the education that leads to maybe a good job. Why do we choose hard over easy? It's we see a reward. That's the only reason we do it. Okay? We will not do it. Why would we do it? I'm the queen of easy. I will always take the easy way. I mean, so I really have to see. It's like, okay, is this going to be good? Delayed gratification. We all have to learn it, right? I have a little grandson He's adorable. 
But the other day, it was really cute. Bren asked him if he wanted dinner, and he's all about the food. He's like, yes, you know, and so it didn't immediately appear. And for the first time ever, this child is never, never bad, says the grandparent. But, <laughs> I mean, he immediately burst into tears that she asked him if he wanted dinner. It wasn't quite ready. I mean, we're talking minutes here. But burst into tears. And, I, you know, I looked at that and I laughed and I thought, you know, that's all of us. You know, it's like the moment you hear that there's something good, you want it now. Why would you want to wait, right? But delayed gratification has a purpose, okay? I mean, one, it's a reality. You don't get everything now. He's learning that. You know, it takes time. But there's also a lot of good with it, okay? We, when we wait for things, there's increased joy, uh, we have more pleasure. And so we're all learning how to be, how to delay our gratification. I'm, I'm pretty good on the dinner thing. I can make it a little while. I've learned there's other things that I'm not quite as good at. You know, it doesn't come immediately, and I get a little perturbed. <laughs> I might even throw a little temper tantrum sometimes. Okay, so we have this picture of a kingdom. He calls us to enter this kingdom. But just with the, the illustration and metaphor of a kingdom, we have this idea of allegiance. In addition to entering, he wants us to have allegiance to the kingdom. So implied in the kingdom is you have a king. Okay, What, is the, what do kings do? They provide and they protect in exchange for loyalty. That's what you give them. All right. So we have this image of a king that provides and protects, and we're to be loyal. So in the text, we see a thing that looks like it might not have anything to do with the, the, gate, the narrow gate and the path. It just says it looks like maybe it's a new thought. Beware of the false prophets. Oh, whoa, whoa, what happened? Where, where did the path go? <laughs> Apparently, there's coyotes in the neighborhood. No, really, like there's coyotes in my neighborhood. <laughs> like I got an email that said, beware, coyotes have been seen walking down your street at night. Okay, I'm scared to go out now. <laughs> it's like, remember that exercise at 445 thing? Like I'm starting to think, okay, I might get eaten. Uh, maybe I should stay in bed. <laughs> but he says, beware of the false prophets. What do we learn about the false prophets? It says... They come to you in sheep's clothing, but we find out that, well, they're false. He says it right up front. But so what that says to me is that their message is on point. They look like sheep, Um, but their lives are not on point. Character takes time to see. Second Peter 2 sheds a lot of light on what, how to, how to identify false prophets. And I'll just direct you there. So you can look at it on your own. I'm just going to give you the the three things that I saw in that text. The three things that I see of a false prophet are pride, greed, and sexual immorality. These are big areas. If you see those kinds of things in the character of your prophet, even if their message is on point, Jesus says, beware. I could give you, there's so many examples of this. It's like, which one do I choose this time? Chicago's having some trouble 
lot of difficulty there in the evangelical church. Bill Hybels and James McDonald are two that are in the news right at the moment. And if you look at, you can Google them later. I'm not going to go into their story. I don't have time. But evangelical leaders who have had a message on point that every one of us would agree with. And yet their lives are not marked with true character. At least that's what it appears to be right now. And in each of them, two of the three that I just listed are rampant. Greed, pride, and Jesus warns us. The false prophet's end is destruction. And I don't know about them, their lives aren't over. Hopefully they'll repent and their end won't be destruction. But that's what Jesus says the false prophet's end is. It's a warning. It's a warning to us to watch out for ourselves and what we hear. Um, But it is dangerous to the sheep. I mean, it says he's inwardly a ravenous wolf. Wolf is the sheep's predator, okay? So, I mean, when you read these stories about the damage done to sheep, you see that it's a real thing. Like, people don't want to have anything to do with Jesus and his message after they've been encountering a false prophet. I mean, it's it's just really damaging. And so, it... It's a special warning Jesus gives. Beware of the false prophets. So, the allegiance to the kingdom. You have an enemy to try to pull you away from it. But there's also implied in there, in the command to enter, is an implied command to walk. All right? I mean, you don't just enter and go to eternal life, right? There's a path. So, even though he doesn't say walk the path, it's implied. Walk the path. So what's the path? Well, the Sermon on the Mount, everything you've studied up to now is the answer to that question. It is virtuous life, righteousness. And it exceeds that of the Pharisees. It's not just outward actions. It's whole person righteousness stemming from the heart. The heart drives the actions. The Pharisees had right actions, maybe, maybe a lot of it. I don't think people really looked at them and saw them as evil. But if you read Matthew 23, the bookend to the Sermon on the Mount, the woes, okay, the flip side of the macarisms. Remember I said the opposite of the macarism is the woe. Interestingly, his final sermon is the woes. So there's your bookend. Blessings woes, okay? So he judges the Pharisees and says, your righteousness is not of the kingdom. When we're on the path, we are transformed. He says, Jesus says later as he's starting to uh, teach more, he says, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Action, okay? So let's not kid ourselves that we're not called to obey. We are. That's part of being a loyal subject to the king. Okay, so my question, does this call to wisdom apply to us? I mean, you can read this passage, and kind of like I did when I started, 
before I really got into it, it's like, okay, it seems like it's a call for salvation, right? Enter the path. I mean, aren't, aren't we on the path? Like, like, haven't I accepted Jesus? And I'm on it. I mean, does this really apply to me today? You know, and I'm going to say that it's not just for salvation. It's for sanctification as well. It's that process of transformation. We need this call to be sanctified. Because sometimes the broad road looks good to us. Right? I mean... I know it has to me. I mean, where is the shortcut? Where is the easy way? What can I not do is how a lot of times I look at it. But we need a vision of the gate. What is the gate? And I want to give you two different pictures of the gate from real life. You know, I said the gates take us somewhere. One gate, the broad path, is the Auschwitz gate. The sign over that gate says, here's my best German, Arbeit mach frei. (laughs) Some have seen that gate. I have not seen that gate. It means work sets you free. How crazy is that? That gate says work sets you free. The second gate is a cross. And there are two different ways. And that gate has on it, I set you free. If the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. But that gate looks like death. It it is not appealing. If you've had to do hard things that required you to die to self, if you're like me, it's hard. It's always hard. Like, it never seems to get easier to willingly submit to death. But why do you do hard things? You do it for something better. That's, I said, the only reason you're going to do a hard thing is because you see a reward. There's a way of life that feels like flourishing, and it's focused on self. Self is the king in this path. The way of real flourishing has a different king a different gate, a narrow gate. And that king models what it looks like to flourish. And it means, paradoxically, to give yourself away to die. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. So the hard thing is denying the flesh and walking in obedience. But it's never hard just for hard sake. There's always a purpose. Always. At times we're disoriented and it seems purposeless. It just seems like it's hard to be hard. And we question the goodness of God. Let that be a red flag for you. If you're questioning the goodness of God, that something's wrong. Because never before has such goodness, love, mercy, grace, been displayed to the world on the cross. Look at our Savior. He came to lose his life, but it was anything but purposeless. He did it so he could take it up again. And really, maybe my favorite passage I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. He didn't die just to die. He died to be resurrected. And we are the beneficiaries of that. Not just in the future, one day, ah, eternal life, but now. It is the now part of the kingdom. It is a not yet. There is a not yet, but there is a now. 
And if you're in the middle of the hard now, you need hope that there is resurrection. How do you make the right choice? You need a reward. And there is one. There is life. Are you on the hard path of life right now? I know a lot of you are, actually. Have you looked at the path over the way and said, wow, that looks easy. This would be a lot easier if I was over there. But you know that's not the right path. You know. You know it's not good because God alone defines good. He's good. He is the source of all that's good. There's no good apart from him. It's like when the rich young ruler told, when Jesus told the rich young ruler, when he addressed him as good teacher, he said, why do you call me good? He said, only God is good. He knew the rich young ruler had a problem with the definition of good. And so do we. I'm going to say that apart from Christ, we are easily deceived about what is good. We think we know, but often we don't. I mean, I just, it's probably as a result of teaching this passage, but God decided to give me a little life lesson right in the middle of it, which was Ray's parents uh, encountered some health issues that required a lot of extra time for Ray and I to help them. His mom broke her hip. She had been the primary caregiver for her husband, Ray's dad. So it went from them being basically okay, she's taking care of him, to now they both need help. So that fell to us and Ray's brother. So we're like full-on care. But we also have a business. We're running that. And so there's work. There's health care. And then on top of it all, two days before she fell, we had decided to tear up our house. Okay, so like my floor is gone. My house was complete chaos. So there was no place to go for any respite. So for a solid month, like it was... There was no peace. There was no rest. And I would like to say, being the mature saint that I am, I was like, oh, I got that. It's like, I'm grumbling like on day four, all right? <laughs> so I know, and this is just, that's just a small example. I mean, I know some people who have walked through hard things for years, and it's just humbling. So I know that there is a temptation to not run to our Savior. Savior, for rest. We just want it how we've always gotten it, the comfort we want. But there is a better way. God not only wants to deliver us out of our suffering and trouble, and it's always right to pray for that, but he also wants to transform us in it. And if we're not willing to hear that message, that in the middle of it, He wants us, and he wants to give us life there. Then we're missing out on the eternal life that he wants to give us. The path you're on, whatever it is, has a gate. And that gate is the suffering body of our Lord. He bore the wrath of God for our sin to place us in his kingdom now. And he united us to himself so we wouldn't ever be outside his kingdom. He suffered at the hands of the unjust to bring us to God. 
can we not now suffer for a little while while his fullness of his plan marches through time? We know our suffering has a purpose and we're not abandoned in it. He's with us in it. He knows, us, knows it full well because he's experienced it. And he is bringing us life in the future and today. Jesus suffered outside the gate so that his broken body would be the cruciform gate through which we flourish. The only thing keeping us from life right now is our refusal of grace. Let's pray. Father, we need you desperately. We need you to open our eyes to see the beauty of our King, his his broken body, broken for us, to give us life. We thank you that you have authority, and we know that you uh, want to transform us, and you want to hear our brokenness, and you are with us in it, and you will move us out of it. We are not suffering for nothing. You have a plan and a purpose through fullness of time. Uh, We may not see it now, but one day we will, and we are trusting you to bring it to pass. In Jesus' name, amen.